Most of the times when I've heard sermons about the woman at the well, she is treated like a... I don't know what an appropriate word is to use in a sermon. Let's just call her a floozy. She's treated like a floozy. She's treated like a woman who's running around on her husband's, steeped in all of this sexual sin... And actually, most of the sermons that I've heard have talked about how the reason she's coming to the well at noon and not in the morning is because of the way that she's a floozy. She has been ostracized by her community. No one wants her around. Either that or she is so ashamed of the lifestyle that she's living that she is choosing to separate herself from the rest of the community. They point, point out, out that she's, she's had five husbands, husbands. a scandalous thing, and the man that she's living with right now is not her husband. And so the point of this story becomes what an incredible God we serve who loves us even in our sin. We have this wonderful Jesus who loves us and loves us in spite of our sin. Now let me pause for a second to say that's true right there. That's phenomenal news. I'm just, I'm just not, not sure, sure that's, that's the point of this story. story. There's, There's this, um, I don't even know how to talk about, about it. There's this thing that has developed in the social sciences and sociology and psychology that's become really popular lately, and it's called power dynamics, the theory of power dynamics. Is this familiar to some of us? Have we heard about this? They're talking about it in businesses and in schools. Um, and how a person's relative position of power, especially in relation to someone else, uh, affects the relationship. It affects if they can say yes or if they can say no. It affects the things that they do. And as I have learned more and more about power dynamics, because by the way, my seminary was like, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to know about power dynamics so that you don't become one of those toxic, horrible leaders that don't know any of this. So if, oh, here's hoping, right? Here's hoping that that's, that's what happens. But as, as I've learned more and more about power dynamics and I read this scripture with that in mind, I think there are so many additional layers of complexity that I have never heard it preached about before. And I think it not only changes our perspective of this woman at the well, I think it also changes our perspective of Jesus. But, but we, we have, have to start, start with the setting. setting. That's, That's the most boring part, part but we, we have to talk, talk about it because it's important. important. I told you that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, right? Montagues and Capulets. Two households, both alike in dignity, except I don't think they were both alike in dignity. I actually think, well, the truth is they were both oppressed by the Romans. But even amidst their oppression, these were two separate groups of people. From everything that I have researched, the Jews had a larger population... They had a larger swath of the land. They definitely had the religious power more than the Samaritans. And the Jews believed that they were holier and better than the Samaritans because the Samaritans, according to the Jews, were half-breeds. Hundreds of years ago, when some of the Jews were carried off to exile, a few people remained in the land. And those people intermarried with Gentiles, which was like a big no-no. So, so 70 years later, when those Jews return and find that these who stayed were intermarrying, they were like, oh my gosh, what did you guys do while we were gone? And these Samaritans, when they were rebuilding the temple, the Jews were rebuilding the temple, and the Samaritans were like, hey, we would like to come help. We worship God just like you do. We believe in the one true God too. And the Jews were like, no, you are no longer clean. You are no longer pure. You cannot have a part of this. So this is not two equal groups who have had a historical feud. 
This is one group who is um, more populous than the other, the first group that had more land than the other, more power than the other, the first group who believed themselves to be holier than the other and also assumed that there was nothing good about the other, and Jesus belonged to this first group. So when he sits down at a well in Samaria, even though it may seem like he's not on his home turf, he still holds the power, the socio-political power in this situation by being a part of the larger, more powerful, more holy group, and also by being a man in that day and age. And into this walks the Samaritan woman. Rather than her being a floozy, this sinful woman who just ran around on her husband that Jesus looked at. In fact, I read some articles about the Samaritan woman this week, and one just went right to calling her the sinful Samaritan woman. When Jesus met with the sinful Samaritan woman, it was like it was part of her name. It was like it was the title of this section in our scripture. But rather than her being this floozy what if she was actually a victim of a system of power? So let's think about it. We talked last week about having compassionate curiosity with other people's stories, right? When people put them out there, instead of us just judging or having our presuppositions, we ask questions. We compassionately wonder about what's going on. So women back then did not have the right to divorce their husbands. Husbands could divorce their wives, but women could not divorce their husbands. So if she had had five of them, it wasn't her who was doing the leaving. And if women were caught running around on their husbands, then the legal recourse was that they could be stoned. They could be put to death. Their husbands could have them put to death. So if this woman had had five husbands and she was still alive... I don't, I don't really, really think, think any of this was her fault. It sounds, sounds like either they passed away or they abandoned her. But either way, this portrayal that we've had of this woman running around and being a floozy, I'm just not sure that's accurate. I think she was actually the victim of a cultural system that left her powerless to control her own fate. And so in the end... She, she finds, finds this, this man who she's, she's living with who isn't her husband, as Jesus pointed out. Maybe they were just roommates, two stragglers who were trying to figure out how to live outside of the system. Or maybe they were more than that because she was like, listen, I've been married five times. It has never worked for me. I've always ended up abandoned. I'm not doing this again. If that is her story, I imagine that she was pretty suspicious of men. I imagine, I imagine that she, that she was, pretty was pretty suspicious of people in power or in authority. Since the systems of power in her community had not been doing good work for her. Now, this situation in life may have still caused her to be ostracized by her community. She may have still chosen to stay away, which is why she was coming to grab water in the middle of the day. But when this Samaritan woman approaches the well where a man sits, and a Jewish man at that, a man in power from a sociopolitical standpoint, I wonder if she was like, okay, just take a deep breath. Keep my wits about me. Just get in. Get the water. Get out. This doesn't have to be a big deal. Everything's going to be fine. 
She knows she's on the underside of the power dynamic here. Don't look at him. Don't talk to him. Just get in, get the water, and get home. So then Jesus asks her for a drink. And actually, according to the scripture, according to the Greek, he does not ask. He says, give me a drink. It wasn't so much of a question, but more of an imperative statement. And they begin this dialogue. But with all of these layers of complexity on top of it, I'm just not sure that the woman's portion of the dialogue is how we normally read it, where she's just this bright, happy, oh, you're a Jew? And you're asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? Why? I just don't think that's who she was. With With all of these other layers, I'm not sure that's an accurate reading. I think instead these layers of complexity may have had her be a little bit cynical, a little bit skeptical. When I read it again, I wonder if there's some sarcasm in there, like a woman who's done being a pawn in somebody else's game. So I've actually asked Jordan and Lisa to come read it again for us and read it with these added layers of complexity from the woman at the well. Give me a drink. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, if you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Wow, impressive. Well, then... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You are right when you say you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, let me ask you something, prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. That's better than what I thought you'd say. I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I the one one speaking speaking to you. I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I wonder... 
I wonder if there's truth in any of this. When I consider the woman of the well from this alternative perspective, it changes my understanding of her, but it also changes my understanding of Jesus. I never quite understood how for this woman, Jesus went from like zero to hero in five seconds flat. Like this feels like a really short conversation. And at the very beginning, he's just this strange Jewish man. And then somewhere in the middle, she kind of calls him a prophet. And then, and then by, by the, the end, end, she goes, goes and, and tells people, people that she thinks she just found the Messiah. But the, the conversation, conversation itself never really struck me as all that powerful to make her go all that direction in such a short time. But what, what if there was something else about it that helped her have this progressive revelation that this guy, this guy's different. There's something, there's something more here. Here's the first thing I notice. The first thing I noticed is that Jesus was actually there. He had to intentionally put himself in the path of the woman at the well. Back then, the common practice was for Jewish people to go around Samaria. It kind of looks like this. Here's a map for you. The map that I looked at slightly different, but some people say Samaria is here. You have Nazareth, where Jesus is from, in the Galilee, and you have Judea, and you have this little sliver of land by the Mediterranean Sea that's probably backwards for you all. So they would either go around this way, or they, or they would, would cross, cross the Jordan, Jordan River and go, and go up, up that way. But most Jews would not go through, straight up and down, through Samaria. Jesus chose to be there. And this is actually an interesting, to note, an interesting thing to note as we talk about power dynamics. Avoiding rough neighborhoods is a privilege of power. Avoiding rough neighborhoods is something that those who are more privileged can do. They can turn a blind eye. They have the luxury of taking an alternative route if they want to. And yet Jesus, this man, who was in that larger, more powerful group, chose not to. He chose to be uncomfortable. He chose to do something different. He came anyway. He was present and he was there. And if he, a Jewish man, was there, it was on purpose. It was a really good definition of incarnational. The God who is with us, no matter where we are. But more than that, he's the one who instigated this conversation. He didn't ignore her or discount her. He actually engaged with her, despite the plethora of reasons why he really shouldn't have been doing that. But he did, and not just once. Not with his first, give me a drink, where she's like, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman and you're asking me for a drink? But he kept going. It was an ongoing conversation where he listened and discussed and actually answered her legitimate questions as if they were legitimate questions instead of fluffing them off. This is probably not what she was used to in her world, in her environment. I picture her hearing Jesus' first words, give me a drink, and I wonder how many other commands she had heard from men or from people in power over the course of her life, and I wonder if that first response really was sarcastic. Why do you want a drink from me? You're a Jew, don't you know? I'm a Samaritan woman. This is not appropriate. Or if her response was just cynical, I'm a Jew. Or you're a Jew. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Either way, she didn't give him a drink. She didn't just immediately acquiesce to his request. 
And, and often, people, people in positions of power, when they get spoken to like that, that or when they, they aren't met with this immediate, like, groveling obedience, they respond with indignance. They're like, how dare you speak to me like that? Don't you know who I am? And that is not at all what our Jesus did. I kind of wonder if Jesus' eyes lit up a little. If he's like, ooh, because remember, he loves this woman. She doesn't know it yet. They don't, they don't yet know, know that God so loved the world that God came to the world. But he does love her. And love, as we know, is not rude or proud or self-seeking. So Jesus didn't respond as someone who was rude or proud or self-seeking. He engaged with her and connected with her. So the fact that this Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink, if that wasn't enough of a clue that this guy was different... The rest, the rest of the conversation, conversation is the, the way, way that he engaged, the way, way that he never lost patience and never got testy and never got frustrated by her attitude, the way that he, that he treated her like someone who was not beneath him and shouldn't be questioning him. He didn't do that. That may have been exactly what she was expecting, but it is not at all what she got. And as the conversation goes longer and deeper, she begins to realize more and more who he is. At first, he's just a Jewish man, and then he's a prophet. And then she asks him a challenging religious question, and he gives a really phenomenal answer to it, that something in her rings true. And she goes, oh, I think this might be the Messiah. And I wonder if this progressive revelation of hers wasn't just because of the words on the page but because of all of the other layers of complexity, because of all the things he said, but all the things he didn't say and the ways he didn't say them. Even just his presence, even just the fact that he was there. Maybe he looked her in the eye when she spoke and responded to her questions with consideration and thoughtfulness. He treated her like she mattered, and all of these nonverbal things made just as much of a difference in the life of someone who had never been treated with such dignity, or at least not for a very long time. And maybe all of those things, in addition to his answers, are what helped her realize who he actually was. When we consider the scripture from this perspective, y'all, I find myself liking Jesus so much more. I really do. That even Jesus understands power dynamics. And even Jesus understands added layers of complexity that we all live with. And he enters into our lives and enters into our understandings anyway. I learned so much more from this conversation when I look at it from that other perspective. It's not just a conversation that a really holy Jesus had with a sinful Samaritan woman. And in fact... Not, Not once does he say that she has sinned. Not once in this conversation does he point out sin. Not once does he offer to forgive her for her sin. That's something that we put on it. Not necessarily something that's actually in the scripture. So with the woman at the well, maybe she's not what we thought. And with Jesus, maybe he's so much more than we thought. But there's, there's one, one more additional, additional truth here that I hope we'll see, and this is how we're going to end today. All of these things that Jesus is like, all of these really good things, the patience and the kindness and the 
understanding human dignity, all of those things, that's what God is like too. We often say that Jesus is like God, but these days, especially among those outside of our walls and even for some of us inside of our walls, God doesn't have that great of a reputation. God is the wrathful one or the distant one or the angry one, and Jesus is the other one. But rather than thinking that Jesus is like God, what if we switched our understanding and thought God is just like Jesus? Like Jesus, God is intentional with us, comes to seek us out. God doesn't play games. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the entire fullness of God dwells in Christ. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. One of the greatest Anglican theologians of the 20th century put it like this, God is Christ-like. And in God, there is no unchristlikeness. So it's not that Jesus is like God. It's that God is like Jesus. Like Jesus, God comes to us and seeks us out. Like Jesus, God instigates connection with us and continues to engage and reach out to us even when our responses are less than enthusiastic. Like Jesus, God engages us with patience and kindness, not pride or indignance. Like Jesus, God does not regard God's own honor and glory as the most important thing. God is ever willing to get down here in the muck and the mud of our lives. And to see and uphold the dignity of those who feel oppressed and who feel powerless and marginalized. And, and to, to love, love even those of us who others think are unlovable or unholy or unworthy. God is just like Jesus. And I think that is really, really good news. Really, really good news. 